0: Listening to World of Noise on X-Ray FM and the X-Ray Podcast Network, I'm your host, Bob Ham. Each week, we take a small dip into the vast pool of musical talent here in Portland via interviews with the artists making the noise and those folks who are supporting their noise-making. Later on in the show, singer-songwriter Mo Troper will be on hand for another edition of Take 5, our regular segment where I ask an artist to choose five songs that were important to them or their work. But first... This week marks the beginning of the 2020 bi PDX Jazz Festival, that annual citywide celebration of jazz music of all shapes and sizes. If you've looked at the schedule for this year's event and came away a little surprised at the breadth and diversity of the artists performing during the fest, that's thanks to Nicholas Salas Harris, the new Artistic Director for PDX Jazz and the PDX Jazz Festival. A veteran of the music industry through his work with the DC Jazz Festival and doing everything from tour managing to booking, Nicholas made a name for himself here in Portland through his founding of the Sold Out Festival, a multi-genre event that welcomed everyone from Prince to Miss Lauren Hill to Eric B. and Rakim to town. And he helped get the Jack London Review up and running. But with the PDX Jazz Festival, he's stepping into some sizable shoes with the recent departure of executive director Don Lukoff. But as the lineup bears out with upcoming appearances by living legends like Branford Marsalis and Archie Shepp, as well as young bucks like Kaysa Overall and Terrace Martin, he's clearly up to the challenge. To get a little more insight into this year's festival and the various roles he has filled for bands and events, big and small, I invited Nicholas Salas Harris to the X-Ray Studios recently for this lively chat. Nicholas Salas Harris, I want to get some sense of where you began. You, uh, so you were born and raised in Illinois. Do I have
1: that right? Uh, you do have that right. Yes, the Central Illinois. I was actually born in St. Louis, Missouri. Okay. Uh, which is proudly not in Central Illinois, uh, but I did grow up there and uh, moved out to the Northwest in January 2003.
0: Okay. And what brought you out to the Northwest?
1: Uh, to be honest, it was about as far away from Illinois as I could get before <laughs> we hit the ocean
0: kind of thing. Okay.
1: Um, that was part of it for sure. Also, just the Northwest, since a very, very young age, had a certain draw mm-hmm. and a certain, um, I don't know. There was something about it from, I remember very young having experiences thinking that the Pacific Northwest had some something there. And so, uh, you know, having moved here and living here now for so long, it's just... There's definitely no place I'd rather
0: be for sure you're pretty much a local at this point,
1: I don't know about that, but i'm I definitely <laughs> want to maintain my presence in the cascadia and, and and this is where I believe I'm supposed to be, so
0: fair enough. I'm happy to be here I'm proud to be here, and I you know I plan on continuing to be here, but before you got out here, was music a big part of your life as you were growing up and before you came out to the northwest? it was yeah always definitely definitely grew up in a house full of
1: Music lovers and hearing music a lot, and going to concerts very young, mm-hmm. and being very attracted to that, and uh, being in the kind of remote interior confines, you know, culturally speaking, of America, you didn't have a lot of options. And so, when the, um, you know, jam band, Grateful Dead, Fish thing uh, kind of happened in the Midwest, it was an example of how music could give you. A ticket mm-hmm. somewhere else, literally and figuratively, to and a community, and and very much so, a community of of just people that you know, right or wrong, were looking for uh, something else. And uh, that that experience early on was definitely informative. I also grew very, I was grew up very much involved in the church and and ch- music, and how the church were uh, connected always very much interested me, and was uh, definitely part of that experience too. But moving out to the Pacific Northwest, I never had any grand designs or. Uh, you know, if you would have told me six months before I started this path that this is what I would end up doing, I, I would have been probably pretty blown away and not <laughs> expecting it. And I still feel the way, certainly on some level, but it was not a. There was no grand design, certainly.
0: You moved out here to the northwest. You went to school at Evergreen State College in Olympia. I did. And as we were talking about before, we got on the mic. You, uh, you know, did a show at Chaos Radio there. When did you start working into the world of, like, music production, like being sort of a behind-the-scenes guy?
1: Right right at that same time. I mean, it really, for me, just came out of a, uh, a need for... Um, it was just a lack in the community, something that was missing. It wasn't that I personally felt like I, I needed to or had to do something. It was much more of just... We have these opportunities. There's nothing going on. Let's why don't we just have some something happen? Let's mm-hmm. just let's do something. Let's make some music happen. And it was pretty easy at that point, having lived in Portland before that, and just paying attention to music and, and kind of keeping your finger on the pulse, so to speak, of the local bands and what's going on. It's not that hard to find a local band to come, you know, play. In a different town for a sure. few hundred bucks, that's not that hard to do. So that's really what it kind of started out of, and it just for me at the time, reggae was uh, roots reggae. You know, at that time specifically, there's certain kinds of bands that were tapping into something. This is 2003. You have to remember, I moved out to the Pacific Northwest, and my first month, I was two months. I was here. There was rallies with 50,000 people in the streets, mm-hmm. f- marching against the Iraq war from happening in, in before it happened mm-hmm. and there was worldwide protests about this kind of stuff and for where I came from where I, a city of 40,000, 50,000 people to see that many people in one place kind of activated in this way was you know very inspirational and uh, motivating mm-hmm. and so music for me was the the, the the you know the soundtrack of that The what is the thing that coalesces around my daily experience that makes the most sense and at that time it was about roots reggae uh, really kind of militant political theology and not theology excuse me uh, ideology you know Uh, not theology Uh, (laughs) in the sense of Rasta and kind of what that meant uh, not about the Christian theology sense but you know just not to digress but the point was it was uh, I just felt like this was missing and it was a voice that I knew my friends wanted to hear mm-hmm. and so bringing bands like Midnight and Groundation and Bamboo Station and Desiree and etc who were urgent fresh contemporary artists at the time to the Pacific Northwest was something they just got kind of got involved with and uh, as that happened doing more of those kinds of experiences and enjoying them and having some success with them producing tours that kind of stuff mm-hmm. uh, other opportunities opened doors opened and then Next thing you know, you get invited to become a tour manager and you say, oh, wow, that sounds kind of (laughs) interesting. Travel around the world with the reggae band and, you know, tour manager. Okay. You know, that's not what I went to school for. That's not what I planned on doing by any means, but okay, sure. Let's do that for a few years. And then it kind of went from there to, well, this agent is not really doing a great job. You know, what do you think about doing some booking, you know, that kind of stuff. And so, you do that kind of work and then eventually you fire your agent and you become the agent you know and then you (laughs) kind of go from there and it just it kind of just kept going in that direction so again it wasn't this plan of I'm going to do X, Y, and Z it was more of this is something I'm really interested in and uh, I'm going to try to learn all I can about it to you know be able to be part of
0: something that I believed in in a bigger picture when did Sold Out become a reality then?
1: it became a reality after a few years in DC where I had this experience where you know we talk a lot, of, uh, I talk a lot about it with my partners and my, their, my other colleagues and whatnot, the, the curtain, mm-hmm. right? The curtain's really important. It's, it's probably the most important piece of the whole puzzle.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because if you didn't have a curtain, then you would, as an audience member, not be able to enjoy the show because you'd see the complete, oftentimes, I don't know if I can curse. Maybe I shouldn't curse. I wouldn't. Uh, I'm not going to curse. <laughs> I'm not even going to curse, but I think you know what I'm going. The complete jumble. Yeah. that it can be to produce an event whether it's a play or a concert or a theatrical piece the I mean, chaos I mean, behind the scenes yeah. there's a reason for the curtain right and so if you don't know what's happening behind there the better and so you know that's a big thing is that if you don't know what's going on out there that means the job is getting done there's so much stuff that has to happen and when you're traveling with a nine-piece reggae band with a three-person crew in an rv you know with no real money and driving four or five hundred miles between each show and you know doing really crazy things that Mm -hmm. no no rational person would do
0: (laughs) really but whatever gets the job done right whoever
1: gets the job done but also what you're inspired by and if you feel like you're part of something that you really believe in Mm -hmm. then you do you do crazy things right make sacrifices so Okay, that, and that's so. Me for me, it's just as long as I'm doing something that I feel really inspired by, and as long as it makes me feel like I'm having to make sacrifices, which means you know, like I'm on the edge, and it's, mm-hmm. it requires, you know, it's not safe, you know. And I think if I'm doing that, then things are good. Yeah, I'm heading in the right direction.
0: Yeah, I think the not safe part of it. Um, I think it's a great way of looking at. In my in my opinion, this is the way I see it about the sold-out festival in general. It yeah. started in 2010. Not safe, exactly. Uh, just the bookings that you did were, were you know, <laughs> it was amazing, some of the some of the folks that you got under this umbrella, Right. where, you know, you look at the website, the first name that pops up there, the big letters is Prince, mm-hmm. which is being involved with that, and then just like all the other artists that you were, you know, bringing into this fold, between like old-school people like Mays with Frankie Beverly, and then new guys like Travis Scott and Future, and it's just an amazing mix. And um, yeah, it didn't. It never felt. Um, it never felt like you see a lot of music festivals. You see the lineups are popping up now, especially this early part of 2020. Yeah, where a lot of them are looking very, very similar. Mm-hmm. It never felt like that was sold out. It always felt like an exciting thing every year. So well done. <laughs> yeah, and that
1: and thank you. And I think that was purely because it was so uncertain and it was just so <laughs> it was such a, a leap of faith mm-hmm. and a crazy thing to do for so long and you know um being on the other side of it on some level now is that just looking back it's a uh, you know if, if i was my age now i would have never started that right you know what i mean yeah like i had to have been 10 years younger and that stupid naive crazy <laughs> bold brash arrogant whatever had to happen mm-hmm. whatever the formula was because now there's no way i would have ever started this now there's just no way because it was complete madness and mm-hmm. it was just completely out of control i mean it was it was nuts i, I don't know you know it's <laughs> it was it didn't make any sense every year it was just incredible like yeah. wow what happened we pulled it together and we did i mean initially it was two weeks and it was two week long event and mm-hmm. Uh, and then it shrunk down to one long weekend. And, you know, we really got to a place where it was really – each year was a significant major step forward and a major growth. Right. And uh, it felt like that was going to continue. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there were powers beyond our control that prevented it from doing that. Uh, otherwise, we'd be continuing to do that. Right. So, um, you know, same thing. You don't start out knowing what it's going to look like. You don't start out saying, okay, here's what this is going to be, and now I have it all figured out. This is a perfect thing that starts, you know, it takes a long time. Yeah. And it becomes other things. It, in, it absorbs other people. It, You know, it, it moves on, and it grows, and it changes. And that's that's what makes it interesting mm-hmm. That for, for somebody that's producing something or, or being involved in it. Because if it was just a static thing every time, it wouldn't be very interesting and exactly.
0: challenging. So. Now th- was it through Sold Out and booking those shows that you kind of got connected to PDX Jazz initially? Yeah, yeah. I mean, to
1: be honest, the reason sold out started was that PDX Jazz or Portland Jazz at the time was just not getting the job done. I mean,
0: I think again, that's fair to say. I think even they would say that. Well, you know,
1: this was a lot. I mean, this was 15 years ago or something like that, and it's it's not begrudging anyone involved in it. It's been an, it's an, it's obviously a really important part of the cultural landscape, and has been and will continue to be. My point is is that at the time, the programming didn't reflect what was happening in the world that we lived in well put and so sold out and why it happened was because portland at the time was a circle of very specific people who loved very specific things and nobody else had any say and for years we didn't get any coverage we had no support nobody took us seriously Mm -hmm. for years because it was all about indie rock and folk music or whatever jam band stuff when i first moved here um and then all of a sudden, the culture shifted, mm-hmm. the zeitgeist shifted, and now it's about hip-hop and R&B. And all of a sudden, all of these same people who refused to give us any support at all, now all want tickets to the shows. Mm-hmm. Free tickets to the shows, comps. Right. 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 So, you know, just seeing that change in the last 10 years, to me, symbolizes what why it was so important for sold out to happen. Because it was happening in other places. We were in New Orleans, we did the New Orleans Jazz Fest by night. We mm-hmm. did ten years of programming there in D C in all these other places where this music that we loved and we connected with was the music that everybody wanted. Yeah. And coming out here, everybody says, You can't do that. You know, you can't do Eric Vadu. <laughs> I mean Just think how absurd that is To say that But for years Everybody told us that Her agent told us that Everybody said You it would, can't it would never fly here You can't do it You can't do it You can't do that kind of music here Sorry You can't do Travis Scott here You know You can't do whatever I mean it, It's happened every step along the way Yeah And They were right From their perspective From a uh, Portland that doesn't exist anymore mm-hmm. That really only Existed for a small amount of time But became what People think of When they think of Portland Right Writ large, through Portlandia or whatever else, mm-hmm. which is you know fine, Portland, Portland experience. It's part, it's part of the deal. <laughs> it's true, but there's a huge amount of people in Portland that's my community and that we come from and that we support. That that's not their life, right? And that's not very interesting. And uh, there's tons of other stuff that's way more interesting and urgent and you know again inspirational in the ways we've kind of been talking about mm-hmm. that uh, are a lot more fun. And so. You could do it. You just had to do it. Somebody yeah. had to be stupid enough to lose enough money to invest that kind of time and energy <laughs> over a long enough period to write it out. To then be at the place where everybody says, "Oh yeah, of course." Now everybody wants it. Now all we now all the people that we used to ask for help for are stealing our shows. Right. You know, I mean, so the promoters in town. Everybody. I mean, everybody now. Everybody's our, all. Everybody does R and B and hip hop shows. It's True. So, you know, and that's fine. Yeah, it's good. I'm. We were just right place, right time, and saw it coming. And put a boat in the water when the tide rose. Yeah.
0: Looking at the lineup for this year's PDX Jazz Fest, and I think last year a little bit too, um, I see that shift happening of how much more dynamic and uh, a little unsafe some of the booking has gotten. Because I think, you know, as great as I have seen PDX Jazz and the Portland Jazz Festival be, over the years that I've been here and going to the festival on the regular, um, you know, it didn't, it wasn't really reflective of other jazz festivals, other big jazz festivals around the world. Mm-hmm. You know, you think of all the people that get booked to the New Orleans Heritage and Jazz Festival every year, everybody that plays uh, Montreux mm-hmm. overseas, right. or these other big jazz fests, where they get very multi generational, they 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 expand out beyond genres, um, and it's really exciting to see. And so having you on board, and I could you know it was the thing when, when the the lineup for this this year's festival got announced mm-hmm. um i could see immediately the impact that you had had mm-hmm. on this uh, on this festival with the bookings that are involved between mm-hmm. you know seeing thundercats name on the bill or um Kesa overall who's mm-hmm. you know played at uh, your venue the jack london right. uh, last last year i think right. it was yep you know yep. mark declive clive low playing with jamie right. branch right. stuff right. like right. that so yeah. um, Tell me about your decision to to jump into this, though, and uh, because because it should be said that sold out uh, is that pretty much done at this point? It's not done. It's just not happening in twenty twenty in
1: its current in its prior formation. Okay, it's a cryptic way of saying that it's uh it's up in the air for now. Okay, but it's not happening this April twenty twenty in the in the same way it's happened in the last ten years. Okay, and part of the reasoning for that is because of this alignment with PDX Jazz and and me coming on board with PDX Jazz as the new artistic director is that, again, a big reason why I sold out started is because this wasn't happening in the right way. Uh, Not in the wrong way, but just in a way that, again, was inclusive and getting a younger audience involved. So for me, it was, you know, if we're going to do... PDX Jazz is a similar format. It's a multi-city, uh, excuse me, multi-venue uh, city-wide event in mm-hmm. February, the last two weeks of February. And so to have the same kind of format and structure of the event in April, to me, just felt redundant. And we've also discussed already the problems that it sold out that it currently have with the ongoing AEG Coachella litigation and, and X, Y, and Z. So there were a lot of reasons, but the opportunity to come on board with PDX Jazz, which to me is, um, you know, a stalwart, arts organization that really matters in, mm-hmm. in the Pacific Northwest and in Portland and what they've done over the years and the people that have been involved. It's, it's really, really important. My history with DC Jazz, New Orleans Jazz, uh, other pieces of these kind of puzzles and these more institutional events that are not just a series of shows but are deeply rooted in the community through educational outreach, through um, workshops, and through connections to all different kinds of pieces. It's mm-hmm. not just... Showing up for a concert You know uh, It's really important it's, That's what festivals Should be about In my opinion Especially ones that are s- City based And not a field somewhere Right um, And to have the ability To be involved In this jazz world Right now I think it's It's more exciting Than it's been In a long long time I think If you're not inspired By what Is happening In the you know Big umbrella term Of what jazz is Right, right now That you're not Paying attention Or you're you're too hung up On some old standards That you know a big part of what's going on. I mean, yeah, the jazz world is being driven, you know, into the 21st century, kicking and screaming. And you know, there's a lot of people in the programming worlds and the institution of jazz mm-hmm. that are not really thrilled about it. Yeah, but this is such an important part of the, the the process as well. It's the same thing. You know, we're just all we're doing is creating a, a bigger table um, with more and interesting, diverse names mm-hmm. and, and people that are involved. And, and who gets to say what's what's what? Right. You know, and why is it that it can be jazz or not jazz or what do we call this, you know? And we don't have a name for it yet. What's going on right now in London and LA and these different places in this kind of Christian Scott I think is the best term I've heard for it. stretch music. You know, he talks about it, he calls it stretch music, which is kind like of that. A, a hip-hop beat somewhat with jazz improvisation and jazz knowledge. And mm-hmm. Again, it's a jazz standard, right? It's just if you can read music and you know music and you really are that attuned to that level Then you can play jazz, quote unquote, right? You know, which is just being rooted in skill and being able to improvise, I think, freely.
0: So I don't know how much uh, was already set underway uh, by the time you came on board as artistic director of PDX Jazz Fest and PDX Jazz, Um, because uh, I'm just curious about that. Because you know, as I said, you know, there's such a it's such a diverse lineup and there's such an interesting balance of sort of old school standard artists that you might see in a former PDX jazz lineup like, you know, Tuck and Patty, branford Marsalis, um, I mean even Archie Shepp, which goes he's gonna go a little out there, but you know, he's still like a name. People know Archie Shepp, you know. Um whereas, you know, and you've got that balanced out with, like I said, folks like uh Terrence Martin's gonna be playing here, uh, Ron Artess Two and the Truth. I hope I'm saying his name right there. Yep. Um, Ron Ortiz the second. Ron Ortiz yes. thing, the second. Okay, there we With go. With Eric Gales, which oh, unbelievable. That's going to be show. incredible. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, Thundercat and Georgia Ann Muldrow. Yeah. Kesa Overall, who I mentioned. Um, so, yeah, was when you came on board for this, was there a lot of that already in play? Or did you, you know, when you came on board, did you have that mindset of you want to make sure... There's a balance to keep you know, a, a very diverse audience coming out for the festival. Sure.
1: Yeah, so when we're talking about this, we're not talking about just one-year lineup. We're talking about the whole arc of programming for PDX Jazz mm-hmm. to this place, right? And um, understanding that and understanding kind of where you're coming from, it's, yes, there's certain things on like an individual level where you have to b- book certain things and, and kind of uh, um, check certain boxes. I mean— so it was less about what was happening um, already on the lineup this year than it was about understanding the tradition and carrying that forward in a way that was really complementary to the legacy. Mm-hmm. And this is what we're talking about with, with jazz right now, is that it's about legacy and understanding what that means right. and really respecting the very few legends that are left. I mean, we lost Jimmy Heath and Claudio Roditi both last week. Right. I mean, we're we're talking there's not many left and so to have Archie Shep, you know, to have a Branford who's obviously of the, of the next generation forward, but a legend in his own right and David Sanborn and, and Terry Riley, uh, right. you know, the, these certain kinds of things is you have to if you're not doing that, if that, that's the foundation you build the whole thing on, right? Is mm-hmm. that this is the legacy we're standing on. And this is the legacy that's always been the core of what PDX jazz and Portland jazz programming has always been about. And Don Lukoff and I have known each other for a long time, tremendous respect mutually. And he's been very supportive and and very kind and, 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 uh, educational and, and helping to pass the baton in a really constructive way. So mm-hmm. it's been, that's been a huge resource for me that I'm really grateful for. And, um, you know, so there's certain pieces that are kind of there that you certain boxes you want to check. Uh, the key is now adding a lot more boxes. So, yes, those boxes will be checked, and yes, we're going to talk about the legacy, not just of jazz writ large, but in Portland and the history of jazz in Portland, which mm. is so criminally underrepresented and understood. That's the baseline. That's the foundation that we're going to work off of, and if we do that right. Then there's other boxes we want to check that talk about how jazz has moved on the world in different ways, whether it's Latin jazz or African jazz or world music or blues and, and how these things connect in different kinds of ways. There's yeah. all these different things we want to hit on. And then you open up to the next generation and kind of what's coming, which then is further blends into all different kinds of things, electronic and hip hop and X, Y, and Z. So, you know, again, it's, it's you're building a house and, and it's really about if you get the foundation right and you get that piece right, the roots right, then... You can really have, I feel like, a little more liberty to then expand the 10 out.
0: Right. This might be a tough one because there are so many amazing names on the bill, on the lineup for the PDX Jazz Festival this year. If there was one, if, there, you, if pray tell you, you can only go to one show. One only, if, show? If you personally were like, there's, I can only go to one of these shows, what would be the, the, the can't-miss show for you?
1: One show. Wow. That's not
0: that's not fair I know it's On not. any <laughs> level
1: whatsoever I'm not even I don't not. Sure. want that for
0: anybody I'm or not even myself. sure if I can even
1: <laughs> legally answer that question honestly maybe I can say there's a couple of nights that I think fair enough Why don't would we do really that? would really be you know if you want to really go out and kind of push it and hit a couple of shows because I think to me this is what a citywide event is is that you're not just going to a concert you're not just going to a field to see a bunch of random bands play to me the citywide thing is cool because you bounce around mm-hmm. right we plan it right we can hit or three shows and get dinner and have a really good night and cover a lot of ground Mm -hmm. so that to me is kind of the cool part about citywide events so I would say let's do a couple of nights that I think would be really uh, informative of kind of what our goals are this year Mm -hmm. Uh, the first one I think is no doubt about it is uh, these are totally off off the cuff so I I don't have any favorites and I love everybody and I you know all the shows are amazing so (laughs) with that caveat uh the first Saturday, February 22nd, we have Archie Shepp, who you mentioned, who is, again, you know, you're talking about legendary jazz bebop cats who moved to Europe forever ago and never came back and right. is, won't ever be back. And this is, you know, one of the few guys you're going to see from that era that are still around and still operating at a high level. You know, him performing at the Newmark at the Portland Five downtown is, you know, that is the backbone of what PDX Jazz is all about, right? And we're going to continue to provide those kind of legendary acts mm-hmm. to see those kind of experiences, whether it was Farrow Sanders last year or, right. you know, Sonny Rollins a few years ago or, or whatever. You know, that's a big part of it. So missing those shows are, are kind of, you're missing the whole point of PDX Jazz. So Archie Shep, to see that live in person is a huge deal. absolutely. But also that same night we have Ballas at... Um, uh, this new venue called Stage 722. Right. And Antibalus to me is a perfect example of the broader reaches of jazz, right? So you have Afrobeat music and Fela Kuti in the 70s and that going to Africa and then coming back and you have Antibalus, which is part of the Daptone world, mm-hmm. which is New York, but also a bunch of immigrants and uh, this kind of Americanized, politicized, uh, conscious Afrobeat sound. Amazing horn section, great polyrhythms, you know, Afrobeat But that's jazz I mean it's high life It's jazz I mean that's where it comes from That's what it is It's right. basically a big band With this kind of Polyrhythmic Situation mm-hmm. uh, So that That show that night Then Duier is This incredible uh, Standard uh, Standard jazz vocalist um, doing standards I should say at the Jack London and then late night that night we have the True Loves which is an incredible uh, Seattle band also in the Daptone Sound straight horn funk power and so there's four shows recovering a lot of ground that night and you can totally see all four of those shows in one night Um, and just because I'm sure we're running out of time. <laughs> I will uh, just say the other night you know, is similar. I mean, there's a couple of them. Wednesday the 26th, i will go really quick. Kenny Barron, John Medeski together, both doing solo piano for the first time ever. They'd never met each other. It's going to be a really cool oh, show. Oh, wow. Uh, Terrace Martin that night, who's the most important producer of the modern era, produced Our Generation's Bitches Brew, which is to pimp a butterfly. He's performing at the Star Theater. Gunhild Carling is the Jack Lennon that night, who's this incredible... Uh, freak show she plays eight instruments multiple instruments at the same time this incredible uh horn player and vocalist This really cool swedish jazz act and then the the last saturday of the festival with um thundercat with georgia ann muldrow and brown calculus at the portland art museum is going to be a really important show for a lot of reasons it's already almost sold out so um you're gonna miss your tickets if we don't get on it soon. <laughs> uh, Harrison Clark Blades Trio with Donald Harrison, and Mike Clark from the Headhunters, and uh, Will Blades. Uh, incredible place uh, at the Star Theater. Jonathan Barber, late night shows, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So my point is, is that there's there's many nights that I think are well worth going out and trying to catch a couple of shows and mm-hmm. really uh, experience the broad strokes that we're coming out of this Brian. year at PDX
0: Jazz Festival. Not trying to back you in a corner to pick favorites.
1: I, you you put me in a, you put me in a corner and I, <laughs> I, I put you I, in a tough spot. There. There. I, I talked my way out of it. I think.
0: So the PDX Jazz Festival for those who might want to attend uh, happening from February 19th through March 1st to uh, grab tickets to look at the schedule to make your plan for an evening out. PDXJazz.com is the place to go. Well, again, my guest has been Nicholas Salas Harris. He uh, helped start the Sold Out Music Festival here in town, helped open up the Jack London Review, and has come on board as artistic director of PDX Jazz the Portland Jazz Festival Thank you for being on the show today. Appreciate it. Thank you. next on the show, it's time to Take 5. Take 5 is our regular feature where I ask a local artist to choose five songs that were important or influential to their work or their development as an artist. And the person picking the songs this time around is Mo Troper. This young singer-songwriter has been a fixture of the indie rock circuit here in town, slowly raising his profile through bands like Your Rival and a series of solo albums that have found him exploring various shades of power pop and melodic rock. His latest release, "Natural Beauty," which is out this week through Tender Loving Empire, is one of his most powerful and engaging statements as a songwriter yet. That finds him expanding his palette through lush vocal harmonies and daring string and horn arrangements. As expected, Mo Trooper came to the X-Ray Studios armed with a list of songs that reflected his lifelong interest in seeking out heartfelt, melodic music with a kick. Mo Chopper, thank you so much for being on the show today Thanks for having me Now again, we are doing an edition of Take 5 Where I have uh, you, I had you pick five songs that were important to you in some way, shape, or form Either the development of your music taste or you're influential to your work And I want to just go down one by one in the list that you sent to me Sure And I'm especially excited because the first one that you picked was an amazing song Which is I Am The Cosmos by Chris Bell (laughs) Who might not know who Chris Bell was? He was a former member of Big Star. Who uh, I don't think he actually released an album in his lifetime. I think he did no, just, just a like seven-inch. A seven-inch yeah, that, that, that Chris Davies
2: Car Records, I think, put it out. That's yeah, that's
0: right. And yeah, um, where and when did Chris Bell and maybe Big Star come into your view? Um, so I I was probably
2: like uh, in high school when I found out about Big Star so I was like 14 or 15, and um, it didn't really connect until I listened to Radio City, and that was like my favorite Big Star album, and then I didn't really listen to the Chris Bell stuff until I was like 17, so I was a little bit older, and then I found that that record, Um, and yeah, that song was just like so um, immediately captivating for me um and i still think that that's like one of the most magical guitar pop songs like ever ever written and recorded and and yeah i think that the thing about chris bell in particular that really gets me is just his chord voicings um like just the guitar chords he plays are really crazy and and unique to him and like um it's kind of like uh proto Elliot Smith in the way that there's like an implied melody in the chord progression and you can't really like cover those songs with like bar chords right like it would just sound so weird and yeah I've like I you know I would try and like learn big star songs and I'm the cosmos like by ear and I'd just be like what is going on and then I would watch like a tutorial and it would just be like mind shattering right Um and yeah just a very I don't know just a very like that song that this song sort of taught me that you could make like major key pop music that was really like loud and anthemic but it could also be very haunting which i feel like and like dramatic Mm -hmm. um which i feel like this song like
0: certainly is very kind of has a haunting quality sure i think some of your work does as well if i can say that thanks now uh where did you go to high school where were you where were you at this time um i was so when i was listening to Big Star,
2: so I went to Grant in Portland okay, for my so you're first, a local guy, first yeah. two years. Yeah, and then I graduated from MLC,
0: just okay. like an alternative K-12 through magnet school in Northwest. Were you making music at this time, or were you just like digging in and listening to as much as you could? Uh, a little bit of, I was making music, I don't think I was making music like with the
2: intention of releasing it, mm-hmm. or like playing it, um, like performing out until... I graduated or until I was like 18. Um, so at the time I was just like really invested in in listening to as much as I could. And um, was really like, it was very like um, private okay. for me. But at the same time, you know, I went to like a, a lot of message boards and like I was like a, an internet kid. <laughs> um, so it was also, it was social in that way. But um, I mean, I guess I also, I also went to shows you know, I started going to shows when I was like a freshman to like house shows, but mm-hmm. I wasn't really
0: talking to people about like big star. Well, let's move on to the second track that you chose, which was from a formerly local artist, Dear Nora. Yeah, from their 2006 <laughs> album, There Is No Home. You chose the song Emily. me about your interest in Dear Nora and this song in particular um this song is
2: really uh I remember hearing this song on MySpace um I guess I think that's the there might be a lot of mention of MySpace in this interview but um <laughs> yeah if, I don't remember if it was just a song that was on people's profiles or if it, if it was like a profile song or or what what my first Um, I think it was Magic Marker was the label that put out some of the Dear Nora stuff, and I I really loved that label in general. Um, And so um, maybe that's how I found out about Dear Nora, but um, yeah, I just think that the melody, I mean, I think that Katie Davidson is like an amazing melody writer. Absolutely. And I think that um, there were a lot of like bands around then that didn't seem like they cared as much about melody as dear Nora did. And so when I was like, you know, 14 and her 15 and, and found that and was like, Oh, this is like a contemporary band. That was really special to mm-hmm. me. Cause I was like this, The songwriter clearly care, cares a lot about melody. Um, but that song is really weird. Cause there's this guitar over the whole track yeah, that is playing like weird, like jazz scales. Um, <laughs> and of it's my like favorite
0: parts of this track. Yeah. It's,
2: it's my, it's one of mine too. Um, yeah, and I guess that's why I really like. I do feel like this song would be like less special without that. Sure. Um, like it's almost like it kind of actually reminds me of like like the third Big Star record or something where yeah. it's like um, it's like self-destructive or like <laughs> really self- messing
0: with the formula of what a pop song could be.
2: Yeah, totally. Um, but yeah, and then I I pretty much um, got. I mean, I I think that was like the first Dear Nora song I heard and that captured my interest and then i got into pretty much all of it mm. um, including the most recent album um, i think it's like all great yeah i agree um, with you and i really like the really short songs that also left a big impact on me i heard dear nora before i heard guided by voices so that was okay were, so dear nora was like the first i was like you know oh, that's that's novel you know even though i know that dear nora Sides uh, GPV is like one of their influences. Yeah, um, but to me, I was like, "Oh, that's cool that um, this song is like 50 seconds." <laughs>
0: When you started uh, writing songs and playing songs, was it easy to find people that shared your interest in this very melodic music that you were w- wanting to do? I mean, some of this earlier stuff that you did is a little more, you know, punky. Sure, totally. But uh, I mean, you know, uh, there, there was, I think the the thread through all of these songs that you picked and all the work you've done is that melodic element that you're talking about that cool. attracted you to Dear Nora. Um, yeah, was that something where you were able to find a lot of people that sort of you could you know geek out about jellyfish and? Dear Dear Nora, with I, I mean, Dear Nora for sure, definitely not jellyfish. <laughs> I mean,
2: jellyfish has always been. Yeah, there have been very few people in my life who, um, a like already know about that band mm. and and, b like care to listen to more than like thirty seconds of, um, a song. I show them. Uh, okay. Um, I mean that. Yeah, that's like a. I feel like that band's like kind of challenging. Um, for some people for, for some, some people. for some reason yeah. which is weird to me because like when I heard that band for the first time I was like this is everything I love about music um, no I don't I, I think that Dear Nora yeah I think that I had a lot of friends um, who also grew up in Portland who um, were also really into Dear Nora um, and I associate that band with like a certain time in Portland music mm-hmm. um, like Eskimo and Sons and like um, just this, uh, I don't know, there was, seemed like there were a lot of kind of like those kinds of pop bands, like indie pop bands. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, in general, it was like a struggle to find people who wanted to just, just play like geeky <laughs> pop music. And I think that that is also why like my old band, Your Rival, um, became like more, punk leaning yeah is that it really wasn't it had nothing to do with like me or my um interests or like inclinations it was kind of just like the the people who i was playing with were into like hardcore you know and like the drummer was like a, <laughs> in a hardcore band and so he played like really aggressively and yeah and i'm i'm like you know i don't like exclusively listen to power pop um i listen to punk too but um <laughs> punk <laughs> uh too but uh <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. It was just, um, yeah, it was like, I think there was a a period when I was like, yeah, you know, like I had to like lie to people about like, um, like what the band, like during the job interview process or whatever, (laughs) I was like, I was like, yeah, this is a emo band. (laughs) Um, and I never felt comfortable with that. And then gradually I've like gotten to the point where I'm finally doing like, um, the stuff I really want to do Mm -hmm. or that is like consistent with my my tastes Um, and now it's easier to find people because I think we're
0: all older and uh, yeah and and you've kind of established yourself at this point of what kind of sound you're looking for to a certain extent to a certain extent sure let's go on to the third song that you chose which uh, I think all these songs I was really excited when I got this list this one especially like really warmed my heart to see someone else who loved uh, Put the Message in the Box by World Party
2: Yeah, this is a this is a new one for me. Oh, so, is it? So people people have been telling me for like a really long time to listen to World Party, mm-hmm. um, and I just like never never had. Um, and then I heard this song just sort of randomly. It was like a YouTube shuffle. Oh, okay. Um, and I was like, "What is this?" Like I thought it was like Olivia Tremor Control or something, or like an Elephant Six. Adjacent can totally hear that. Yeah, band, and I was like, kind of sounds like Wilco too. Like, I was just like, what on earth is this? And it was just sort of happening in the background. Like, I was doing something else on my computer, I mm. think, and I was just like, this is in- incredible. And then I was like, oh, of course, it's the one <laughs> band that people have been telling me to listen to for a really long time. And I've listened to that. I've listened to that album, and it hasn't like um, really. I haven't really connected with it in the same way that I have that that single. I feel okay. like that single's like phenomenal. I need to spend more time with that band's records. Um, uh, it's kind of the opposite of what happened with to me with Prefab Sprout, where the first song I heard was "King of Rock and Roll" and I was like, "This is the worst band ever." <laughs> and then, and then I listened to their records and I was like, well, "Actually, this is the best band ever." Yeah. And I now actually really like that song, but it was it was like. With World Party, like, nothing really hits
0: me in the same way that that one song does. Okay, we have two more songs to go. Okay. And another song near and dear to my heart that you chose for the penultimate song on your list, which was Easter Theater by SDC from there. I think it was 1999 when Apple Venus Volume 1 came out. This is from. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. yeah, tell me about uh, your interest in XTC and this song in particular. Sure. XTC also are around the same time
2: as Jellyfish mm-hmm. I got into. So I was like 14, 15, 16. Um, and probably also through like message board recommendations or, you know, right. like recommended if you like Jellyfish. Yeah. They're usually like one of the first bands on that short list. So, um, and yeah, it was like, and I've come to appreciate all of that stuff. I mean, like you were saying about mummer where like, I don't know. I've never, I've never really understood that division where where people think that there's like, that they turned into like a completely different band. Right. Cause I feel like it's always, it's always been the same band. Like it all, it all just kind of sounds like XTC to me. I don't really, in my mind, I don't think about that. Like the English settlement, like, or the black sea, you know, like everything after black sea is trash. Right. <laughs> like it just changed so much. Um, and, yeah. I mean, I was listening to this, this, I guess this would, this was, I was listening to this record a lot when I was making this album. Like okay. this, the CD was in my car when I was like driving to record like to the recording studio. Um, and so I was listening to this record a lot and yeah, just like a very moody pop song. Yeah. Uh, Easter theater. Um, and just like really, uh, yeah, I guess the thing about XTC that always really gets me is just how earnest it is. First of all, very true, um, and how dissonant so much of it is. And okay, like I think in this song, in particular, the the verse and the chorus and that weird bridge section feel all like completely disconnected to me. Yeah. And there's like that huge chorus that they launch into, that is just like a really gratifying payoff, because the verse is like relatively weird sounding and dissonant, and mm-hmm. I feel like I feel like that's a common theme in a lot of XTC's music that really got me. Um, and yeah, I feel like I read some something. W- some interview or something with Andy Partridge where he was talking about how he, like, can't write, like, just a, a, a plain, like, he can't write just, like, a normal pretty song. Right. There's always um, got to be
0: some little element in it that's off somehow. Sure. Um, and
2: that's, like, I almost wish I had that. Like, I feel like a lot of the stuff I do is, like, completely consonant. Um, like, sure. I'm obsessed with with. Uh, you know, like big major chord resolutions and stuff like that. (laughs) And um, sometimes I try, I don't know, I I try and like access that part of my brain where, um, yeah, I just think he's a really interesting songwriter and like um, this song just really gets me, gets me going. Yeah. Yeah, I also, in that documentary, um, that XTC documentary, he talks about how, Andy Partridge like talks about how he thinks about chord changes and, and m- movement like visually. Yeah. Which I so always thought was an
0: aesthetic kind of thing.
2: Yeah. Which I always thought was like really weird. Um, Cause I don't think yeah. I don't, you know, I'm like the worst, uh, like my handwriting is the same as it was when I was like in kindergarten. <laughs> and, like So that, that to me, I think that just, um, I can tell that he just has like a completely different approach to mm-hmm. songwriting than I could ever have. But I also think that our, styles are kind of like compatible and i really like love what he does and so that's always my vote i'm really interested in like how he ticks
0: so when you're recording albums as you were talking about your your new album natural beauty you were listening to this XTC record a lot does that yeah. go the, the same with the other two albums of yours where you're listening to just one or two albums consistently as you're recording these things
2: um yeah i think to a certain extent i was also actually listening to a lot of the i am the cosmos album when i was making this record okay um so sort of that a lot of the i think that this record is like softer than some of the other stuff i've done yeah and i think that that would be why and there's a lot of like organ on i am the cosmos kind of like buried Mm -hmm. it's creating this like very weird texture and there was like a B three at the studio I was at, and I was like, oh, "Hell yeah, Oregon!" <laughs> I've been listening listening to it all the time. Um, what did you record? I recorded most of it. So some of it was recorded at my house. Some of it was recorded at the engineer Ian's house, and then we did a lot of it at Dead Aunt Thelma's in Selwood. Okay. Um, and they're actually it's actually like a very kind of a sparse studio. Um, there's like a grand piano there. And that organ and, like, one amp. I think there's, like, a just an old, like, Fender Champ or something. Oh, wow. Um, but, yeah, we were, I was recording, like, um, we got, like, a pretty good hookup because I was doing a lot of those sessions from, like, 6 to midnight. So I would, like, work and then go to the studio and mm-hmm. did, did a lot of this album on, like, the off hours. Um and, yeah it was I, I actually really liked it I was just like
0: very comfortable excellent yeah um, well let's get to your last song in this edition of take five and your pick was a Bob Dylan song yeah uh, a, a demo of sorts that was on a, a re-release of self-portrait that came out just a couple of years ago oh,
1: no, not by the Spanish there. Got to hurry on back to my hotel room Where I got me a date with a pretty little girl from Greece She promised she'd be right there with me When I paint my masterpiece
0: The song best known by other people recording. Sure. This, you know, The Dead has done a version of this, The Band. Sure. Um, I can't think of the others, but, you know, it's a song that's been sort of out there. I think John Baez might have recorded this one. Um, why this song? Um, so when I first heard this demo, I knew this song
2: from the band version specifically. Okay. And then I was probably 23 and working at Everyday Music when this re-release came out. Mm-hmm. And I remember listening to it and just not like i just didn't know that bob dylan could write a song like that i think okay like that sounded like that not like i thought he was terrible but just (laughs) but just it was so it was like so conventional yeah kind of like it almost sound sounded like he was like trying to write a pop song or something and uh yeah i was just really struck by that and really struck by the lyrics um and, yeah, tw- 2015, that whole year, I was I really got into Dylan for the first time. Um, I don't know. I never really, like, got into – I was never really into him in, like, high school or anything like that. I think because everyone else liked him. It was like kind of like the Velvet Underground or something where, like – Okay. Because people had, like, posters in their room and stuff. It just felt very, like, cheesy. Did people have Dylan posters in your high school? Yeah. Um, I think so I think people had like like pre-stressed Dylan shirts and stuff uh, oh, okay. and I was like this kind of sucks you know because <laughs> I was like a dumb high, dumb high schooler um, but then I listened to it and it uh, yeah I mean I've been talking a lot about my dad in this interview uh, too which makes me feel like it's therapy kind of, <laughs> but but it really but my dad is like a huge Dylan fan and, okay and I got really into Dylan you know then and it sort of made me feel more connected. my dad kind of makes sense and i was like you know just kind of listened to i don't want to say all of it because that's not true but i listened to pretty much everything up to like you know um like desire
0: oh yeah yeah
2: um and then there there are some records that i haven't really listened to yet but you know got really into like blood on blood on the tracks and um Got really into that record again when they did the expanded version a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, and I had a couple of like the bootlegs and stuff. Um, and uh, got really into just the lore, the Dylan lore. <laughs> but yeah, I guess I just keep coming back to this. Uh, I really wanted to include a Dylan song. There is like a song, the last song on this new album, that's in like an open tuning. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's just kind of like the chord voicings are very like Dylan from like blood on the tracks i don't think the song really sounds anything like bob dylan but it almost the, the chords it's like open e or something mm. um and uh so i wanted to include a dylan song but i didn't want to include like idiot wind because it's like an hour uh, <laughs> uh, so i just really i wanted to i decided to pick this song because it's just it's just very simple and, yeah and sweet and um kind of like sarcastic uh, is my feeling.
0: Um, and yeah, I don't know. I just love this song and this version. So you have the release show for your new album, Natural Beauty, which is happening on Sunday the 16th at Holocene. Um, who is going to be performing with you at that? Like the, the other bands? or, the, or the... No, like who's backing
2: you up? Um, so it's going to be... Um, it's the it's the band that's also going on tour with me for the most part. It's um, uh, Jared Reiterbach on drums, um, my friend Brendan on guitar, my friend Brian on guitar and keyboards, and my friend Chitra on guitar. And she also plays in Phone Voice, who's playing that show. Right. Um, and, yeah, and we're going... And then I think, um, the lineup is going to change after this tour we're going on in, in February where I'm actually like in the process of figuring it out.
0: Okay. Um,
2: <laughs> I had to do that pretty soon. Do
0: you have any plans beyond those tours in 2020 or are you working on anything new and any um, new music right now? Kind of. I'm, I'm playing bass in floating room. Um, okay. And,
2: uh, floating room is recording another album. Um, or like at least a bunch of songs that um, may turn into an album or something like that. But um, so that's kind of like on the horizon for me in terms of like new material. I don't know if TLE wants to hear this, but I'm bone dry. (laughs) Uh, I can't, I can't write anything, which uh, yeah, I've had like a really difficult time the last few months writing songs, but I, yeah, I don't really know what I'm going to do. Like I've thought about getting someone else to produce for the first time, like getting a producer to just be like, to sort of craft an aesthetic. Mm -hmm. um,
0: Because you've self-produced everything you've done up to this point.
2: Yeah, and I don't really, I just don't really even want to think about it again. (laughs) Like, I just want somebody to like, and I also performed most of the instruments on this record, so Mm -hmm. I would like to get someone who could just like assemble a band, figure out what everything's going to sound like, and just like kind of shape the songs. Um, Okay. So that might be, yeah, I might do like something a little more
0: collaborative for my next thing but I I don't have any songs so okay yeah well again Mo Troper's new album Natural Beauty is out now and he is doing a release show on Sunday the 16th at Holocene playing with Tender Kid and Phone Voice and where can folks find you online to follow you around Um, uh, Instagram Mo Troper
2: Twitter Mo Troper um, and then Band camp, which is
0: motroper.com. We'll just take you to my Bandcamp. Fantastic. Well, yeah. Mo, thank you so much for coming to be on the show today. Thanks.
2: I, because I'm bored. I'm
0: That's all for this week's World of Noise. I want to thank my guests, Nicholas Salas-Harris of PDX Jazz and Motroper. And I want to thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next week when I'll be joined by Dave Allen. He's the co-founder of International Anthem, one of the best record labels around right now, which has released incredible work by artists like Micaiah McRaven and Jamie Branch and has just entered into an exciting partnership with Nonesuch Records. You'll hear all that and more next time on World of Noise. Until then, thanks for listening.